This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Crack that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul. The show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. I have a very special guest with us today, Alex Weprin. We'll get into his bio in a second. And I want to just say I'm honored because this being a news show, a big part of what we do at BCP is follow what's going on in the industry, but it is not a full-time job and I wouldn't be able to do it without great reporting and journalism. And one of the go-to sources that we've been checking out over the past couple of years of doing the show is The Hollywood Reporter and Alex's articles have always come up. And it was totally happenstance random that it turns out that we had a connection that I knew his uncle who used to work with me and he introduced us. And finally, we've got him on the show. It's such a rare and wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much for joining. Well, Paul, thank you for, uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm the media and business writer for The Hollywood Reporter. I hold down the fort here in New York on behalf of my Los Angeles based colleagues and for THR, I, uh, I cover uh, business and financial news as it relates to the entertainment industry, the advertising business. I write about sports and media, all the things that orbit New York, I would say kind of fall into my purview. I joined THR a few years ago. I previously worked at an advertising trade publication called media post and spent a few years at Politico as a reporter and an editor, but yeah, it's a fun, beat to cover uh, the entertainment industry and the entertainment business. There's a lot of fun things to write about and to talk to people about. And it's just, it's just a great beat. There's a ton of overlap between what you cover, streaming, the strikes, sports, media, impact of technology on content and how it's consumed, produced, protected, and what I do in my practice area. So I'd feel like as far as the business areas that I operate in as a lawyer, I mean, that's entirely corresponds with what you write about. So I did have a few questions just generally as a journalist. I wanted to understand your process on how you break a story, how you stay on top of things, what your day-to-day, week-to-week approach is to the industry. We will have feature stories where either I come up with an idea or an editor will come up with an idea or we'll be have a brainstorming session and we'll kind of as a group come up with some ideas and we'll kind of pursue them, whether it's a big interview or trend-focused feature. Those will be typically brainstorm ideas 
either from me or an individual or as a group. Part of my job is also responding to breaking news. Right. You know, when uh, Rupert Murdoch steps down as the chairman of Fox Corporation, you know, that's something that fell into my beat. I wrote the story kind of uh, breaking that, that he was stepping down. And, you know, then there's also what I would call kind of more quick response trend stories where it's not breaking news. It's not kind of a long feature, but it's something that happened today. And maybe I think this kind of makes me think about something else. And then you write a story responding to that or reacting to that maybe later that day or the next day. We're in the same week. It really depends. We do hear from companies as well, not just as it relates to breaking news, but also they'll have their own announcements or their own news and their own deals. And, you know, we'll react to that as well. There's a few different ways we go about figuring out what to cover, but ultimately we're thinking about the readers. What will help for me as a business reporter, what will help inform them, you know, make them feel smarter, make them feel more informed. So that could be breaking news. It could be a trend that I think is worth keeping an eye on. And it could be kind of a larger feature that I just think is really interesting. I can echo that. I know with us, you know, we're a, a weekly podcast, so we try to be topical. But the last episode was about name, image, and likeness. And when we recorded it, between when we recorded it and when it came out, the WGA strike ended, right? So that's a huge story. Had we not had a scheduled episode about NIL, that's probably what we would have covered. But it's hard to do only breaking news when you want to plan certain things to talk about. And especially with the news cycle being 24-7 and there being so much transition in the industry, I was wondering, how do you, A, find time to balance and, and have boundaries between personal life and professional life? And B, dealing with all the transition that we've seen in the industry, BuzzFeed shutting down its news division, MTV News shutting down. How do you feel like your approach or your company's approach has enabled you to succeed in this challenging environment? Well, you know, I'll tell you first, I'll respond to something what you said about your podcast. Like, you know, <laughs> I actually have a story that by the time this comes out will be live. But in between when I first wrote the first draft for the magazine and it being published, there was a slew of other news that came out that was very relevant to it. So, you know, it does, it'll happen to everybody, you know, you know, in terms of the balance, you know, one of the challenges with journalism and a lot of other jobs as well is that stuff happens when it happens, you know, when right. Bob Iger was reinstated as the CEO of Disney. It happened at 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday night. I happened to be at my computer because <laughs> I, what, you know, it was my personal computer. I think, what was I doing? I was like looking at bills or something. It was, it was something very boring. Yeah. And I saw the email come in. I was like, well, this is more exciting than right, what I was sure. working on. Yeah. yeah. So uh, even though it was 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday, I, I kind of sprung into action and began reporting on that and writing that. That does happen. At the same time, because what I do isn't necessarily built around a very structured environment, you kind of make your own schedule and figure out when you're going to write, when you're going to talk to people. It will happen throughout the day. And if you're able to kind of maintain a, a sense of balance and maintain a schedule, you can kind of make it work. I don't know if you've found this, but I've certainly, in the year and a half of doing this, now people come to me with things that are like, hey, you should talk about this on an upcoming episode. And it actually creates this critical mass where people send you things because they think you can blast it out. So I don't know if you've noticed that sometimes it's like this organic thing where the information just finds you. It happens all the time. The hard part is really filtering it for me. You know, I, I probably get what I would describe as a pitch, you know, whether it's someone actively pitching me a story or whether it's just someone suggesting an idea or sending a link three to 400 a day. 400 a day. Three wow. to 400 a day. Wow. And a lot of them are very casual, you know, or, or frankly, a lot of them are totally irrelevant to me. Like we pitched, you know, random authors about self-help books and like 
that's not my thing. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the hard part is filtering, okay. you know, recognizing these 230 things I have to ignore because they're not relevant to me or like it, it's not or they're know, not interesting. Even real, maybe. Might be not even real. And then prioritizing what the pitches that are interesting and relevant to, to what I'm working on. So that's the bigger challenge for me. 400 a day, that's that's insane. And for those who don't know, I mean, Alex, you're very prolific. Some some days I'll see three or four articles from you. Other, I mean, and other writers, like you said, there's feature writers that write one or two stories maybe a month or every two months, and you're writing stories all the time. Do you prefer that or would you consider more of a balance? It depends. You know, uh, I think every writer would like the luxury of spending time on something. But my style personally is I love the news. Okay. I love following what's happening. And so while it's a little stressful sometimes to have to respond very quickly to something that's breaking, I like taking the information that's out there and thinking about it and analyzing it. I don't like to spend too much time on it because I think you can spend weeks thinking about something. I'd rather try to execute, but it really depends. You know, I did a big feature story on the NFL that took about a month and it was stressful. It was exciting. It was a little out of my comfort zone a little bit to spend that much time thinking about one story. But you want to have a balance between the quick turn things and the things that you can spend more time thinking about. Yeah. Well, the NFL is a huge business, maybe the king of all media now, who knows? And their season is underway. Things are going great. They have their own streaming product, their new deal with YouTube. Apparently, by all accounts, has been very successful. So I could see why you'd have a lot to discuss there. Thank you so much for that background, Alex. Let's take a quick break and dive back in with some of the top stories in the industry. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Now, given that it's such a rare treat to have an industry insider with us on the show, we have a lot of topics that have been happening. Most importantly, I think the WGA strike, which had gone on for about five months, 148 days. Writers weren't working. And basically the entire summer, I guess from end of May till now, the industry was frozen. Now, the DGA didn't strike and SAG is still striking. But it turns out that by what I'm reading, and I think all accounts, the writers were able to get a pretty favorable deal from the AMPTP. Can you talk about what your take is? I am curious what you think about how the sausage was made, what do you think the breakthroughs were, what you're hearing, basically. Based on what I've seen, and I read the interim agreement, as we're speaking, it still has to be ratified by the, the writers, but the strike is over. Right. It does seem like the writers got most of what they wanted, which is good for them. You know, but that's what you want when you're in a negotiation. You want to get more for your side. If you're going to compromise, you'd rather compromise 
in your favor more than than the other person's favor. But the fact that it's over is a huge relief for Hollywood. The two strikes, the writer's strike and the actor's strike, has had a huge financial impact on the entertainment business. And it will continue until the the actor's strike is over. I think talking to folks, the best case scenario, the actors are going to return to the bargaining table on October 2nd. Best case scenario, maybe there's a couple weeks of negotiations. I wonder if the WGA, if their new agreement, if that sets a framework for what the SAG and AMPTP might agree to because there were some initial issues of first impression like the AI protections that maybe it's slightly different between writing and acting but you wonder if the WGA broke new ground. There's a lot of overlap and I think that that will make things easier and move quicker because you can take the template from the WGA deal and apply it. That being said, the actors do have some quirks, you know, uh, I think in some ways, I think their AI concerns were a little less. Well, their concerns were about being recreated. Exactly. Yeah. They, they wanted to make sure that if you're going to create a digital actor, that you could be compensated. So, like, that's, you know, that's a different concern than the WGA had, where it was about creating, you know, original Written work. Material. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But there's clearly overlap, especially in terms right. of the financials. Like, that's right. an the easy minim- place. The increases to minimum compensation, that's an, the-, the bonus structure. So, like, that's yeah. an area where they can kind of quickly get on board there. So, that gives me hope that this will be relatively quick in terms of negotiations. Also, the fact that in the writer's strike, I think things sped up once the executives from the studios sat down in the room. The chief negotiators for the WGA, you know, you had David Goodman, Chris Kaiser, Ellen Sutzman. And so they were the leads for the guild, for the right. for the union. And I think things picked up once Bob Iger and Ted Sarandos Dave and David Zaslav and Donna uh, Langley from NBC, once they actually sat in the room, you know, yeah. until then... It was the AMPTP led by a woman named Carol Lombardini and her job is to negotiate and she will then go to the studio members and kind of tell them what you know the talks are. But I think once the executives, the CEOs actually got into the room, it speeds things up because instead of like have playing a game of telephone where, you know, you have to contact one person and another person, then you go back and forth. And there's a lot of maybe more posturing if there's an intermediary that's sort of taking exactly. positions back and forth. They yeah. can take a break for 15 minutes, just talk about it in a room together. So I think that makes things easier. I think it certainly allows people to sort of cut to the chase of what they really need to move forward. And just as a very high level recap, so... We talked about AI. So basically, in the new WJ agreement, a writer can't be forced to use AI, but if they use it, they can consent to its use. They would have to use it in alignment with whatever principles the company hiring them has. Material written by AI isn't going to count as source material or otherwise affect writing credit or separated rights. Anything that's written by AI has to be disclosed and identified. So those are the core protections regarding AI. Another area that we had debated all summer long on the podcast and just in the industry was were streamers going to be transparent about success and failure and the numbers? How are they going to approve? How are writers going to participate when a show is a runaway success? How are they going to share in that? And then how are residuals improved? And I think both of those areas, at least in terms of data sharing, there's a really logical but intelligent solve, which is the streamers will, under NDA, release data to the guild. The guild can't release it to any particular writer. And the only thing they can do is display it in an aggregated form. And they can request an audit if they want to make sure, like if you want to check the data, but yeah. For anyone that works in advertising, that's often how advertising data works too. It's like you can't disclose anything that's individual or that would identify a brand or a content creator, but you can disclose things in an aggregated fashion that wouldn't identify anything like that. It's interesting, you know, because it is a big, it's still a big change for the entertainment industry because if you think about linear television for the last 40 years, basically, 50 years, 
that the data, the ratings, was somewhat public. Next day, yeah, yeah. or the, that week, yeah. Because Nielsen, in the early days of television, the networks had no way of knowing how many people were watching their shows. Right. The advertisers had no way of knowing how many people were seeing their ads. And so they found a third-party Nielsen that took kind of the logistics of public opinion polling, and they developed their diary and then you know their people meter uh, to, to be that third party. And so the result was that for a long time, all this data was somewhat public. It was pretty accessible. The networks freely released it because Nielsen- It helped them sell ads. And Nielsen was a third party anyway. They used yeah. it for public relations purposes. If you wanted to have the number one show, you know, it was a good thing to have. And so that's the big change and that they're moving to the system that has been pretty typical for the ad business for a while, but it is less transparent than the TV business used to be. And the WGA agreement is interesting because- it gives some of that data. For what it's worth, I do think that these streaming companies will become more transparent about viewership because I think they, you want to tout the wins. You know, you want to have a hit. It helps. Right. They'll, they'll rank like their, their top performers, but they won't necessarily. And sometimes they'll get into hours. That's the thing. The WGA deal calculates a view. Right. And it's a consistent metric across all the streaming services. And it's based on hours viewed. Right. And so I think that will become a new standard. There might be some fudging, you know, because some shows only have eight episodes in a season. Some might have 20 episodes in a season. And it's a lot easier to get a higher number with 20 episodes in a season than it is. Number of hours. Yeah. Number of hours. Yeah. So, you know, you could do the number of hours divided by the number of episodes or something like that. I think that's going to become the new standard. And I think we're going to, that's going to become somewhat public in the way that Nielsen ratings were. Because I think that if you're Disney Plus or Peacock, if you're a, a smaller streaming service like a, a Peacock or Paramount Plus, you're going to want to tout the wins that you have right. compared to the bigger ones. So I think that's where we'll see some public disclosure. Yeah, in an aggregated form, top line numbers. I think you won't see Paul Sarker watched XYZ show no. at this time. Correct. Right? You won't see that level, but you may see this show was watched by 10 million hours on this day or something like that. Yeah. Or by yeah. 20% of the subscribers to And that's service. important for the bonuses that right. they're going to get for streaming as well. So, so big win there. Another thing I thought was interesting is that ad-supported or fast content, which was traditionally different than considered subscription, now those things are sort of blurring because you'll have a subscription product with ads. Now they're saying, the WJ is saying, well, it's really, we're going to treat them all the same depending on whatever the budget of the show is. That's going to trigger what the minimums are and what the residuals are, which I think is great. Win for the WGA, I think, is, is what the industry takeaway is. But I would always say this as an economist, when the cost to produce something goes up, the amount of things that are produced often goes down. So you may see, and we may see, that fewer things get greenlit and studios are a little bit more careful about what they're producing rather than you know the content bonanza that we had in the past couple of years, like things may be more selective. I think the timing is kind of a perfect storm. For the last 10 years or so, we were in what I would call the peak TV era. Right. You might have heard that, that term used. Um, it was coined by John Landgraf, who was the chief executive at FX uh, and at Disney. The addition of all these streaming services combined with the traditional linear TV networks meant that every year there were more and more and more TV shows. And I think within the last year before the strikes, that was the tide was beginning to turn because the streaming business, with the one exception of Netflix, was not profitable for anybody. And so I think everyone was beginning to pivot towards profitability, and that means having fewer shows. And so that was before the strikes. The strikes are going to exacerbate that. It's going to cost more to produce a, a show. Even if there's some savings, because I think a lot of the COVID precautions, which added about 20% to the production cost, those are going to 
go down, but like you're still going to have higher costs for labor. So there's going to be a pretty, I think there's going to be a pretty big contraction in terms of content. The question is how big, because these companies still want to put programming on their TV channels and they still want to have new originals on, on streaming. So does it go down by 20%? Does it go down by 50%? That's the big question that we're going to wait and see how, what happens there. Right. And, and we often say on the show, a huge budget doesn't necessarily guarantee success, right? So it, it was always a, a bit of a numbers game anyway. And, you know, there are shows that cost $200 million that don't do well. There are shows that cost 10% of that and do really well. First season of the Lord of the Rings series on Amazon cost more than half a billion dollars. Right. Now that's an extraordinary number for one for one season of television. The cost can be quite high. That is an outlier, of course, but you know, it's not crazy to to spend a hundred million dollars on a high budget premium drama for a season. So So we'll see. Studios are gonna be more selective about what they green light. That's for sure. That's one takeaway. So let's take a quick break and dive back in with some thoughts on AI. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to transition to AI. This was, as we said, one of the major issues that the WGA was fighting over. And the concern uh, that the, the writers have is different than what the actors have. But it, it all comes down to an algorithm, a machine, creating something or making a human obsolete. You know, Making the services of a human obsolete or devaluing the services, whether it's writing or acting or coding, or lawyering, or being a radiologist, or whatever. There's any number of industries where I think people are afraid that they could be displaced by computers or algorithms. And, and, and that, that fear has always been part of sci-fi, but it becomes more clear and present now as the algorithms get better or more accurate. And so what are your thoughts on AI? I mean, I think it's a really open-ended question. I think it's undoubtedly here. It's undoubtedly going to be something we have to adapt to. Do you think the WGA approach is the right approach? Or if you were creating a framework, would you would you go with that? Yeah, I mean, I actually think the WGA approach is the right one because at a basic level, they're kind of saying, let's see where the law ends up going. Right. Because <laughs> there is a lot of uncertainty still about this stuff. For now, of course, when it comes to written material, copyright doesn't apply. That's where things stand now. But I think they are being careful and making sure that they're following where things go in that respect. But in terms of the technology... If anyone who's seen any of the demos or played around with any of the tech, like it's extraordinary, like what, right. what the stuff is capable of. And YouTube unveiled some interesting AI tech just uh, a couple of weeks ago in New York. It's going to become more and more mainstream in a way that like it, where I feel like it's still in the early adopter phase and people are 
just playing around with it and a lot of normal folks aren't haven't used it at all it's going to become more present it's going to become more useful and practical to people in every industry not just the entertainment industry no i agree and you touched on this topic which we discussed in a prior episode which is copyright is only attached when it's an original work of human authorship so if it's an algorithm or computer with no role played by a human then it's not copyrightable that may change, right? Legally, that may change. Exactly. We don't know what the legal outcome of some of the AI tech will lead to. You know, We don't. And so I'm actually a member of the AI practice group at GT. And one of the things we tell people is that industry moves at one pace. Law and regulation tend to move at a slower pace. So we can't necessarily say, just like the writers couldn't say, well, let's wait for the law to figure out AI before we let it be a thing, right? It's like, no, it's already a thing. If we don't put guardrails around it ourselves as an industry, then we could potentially regret not having a framework. And so, you know, things like machine learning, how to use data, actual algorithms, robotics, all of those things, I think, are moving at paces that it's hard to really comprehend. I think you know it when you see it. So the devil's always in the details. So the WGA says something like, anything that was written by AI needs to be identified as such, right? Flagged as such. Like, how do you do that? Kind of the honor system. The honor system. And right. And so if someone's using ChatGPT and they put in a bunch of prompts and then they get something spit out, do they say, okay, this was produced by AI or this was like, I, I co-wrote it with AI because I came up with the prompts. Yeah. Is it like Photoshop where it's like, if you use Photoshop, you're using this tool right. made by Adobe to create an image. If you use a Dolly, you know, the, this AI image generator, is that basically the same as Photoshop or is it something else? Like, you know, the, it, it's an interesting question. And I would say that it's something else, but the distinction is is really hard to make because, you know, you're, you're providing inputs versus like Photoshop. You, you can take an image and you can improve it. You can edit it. But can you create something with just two divergent images yeah. or two divergent concepts in Photoshop? I don't know, but it, it's very interesting. Yeah, and I will say the entertainment industry does use AI already in special effects, right? which is a logical place to do it. You know, um, you can create artificial fire and, you know, all these all these tools, you know, the special effects that you can kind of incorporate into a scene and they use their software. You know, one of the most tedious parts of special effects was literally you'd cut out characters, you know, you'd, you'd cut out a person in every frame. In the old days, they would literally have someone with scissors cutting out a picture on a, on a piece of film. Now it's done digitally, but that's an area where AI could probably help and streamline the process of, of cutting out someone in the scene to kind of insert a background or something like that. And we, we mentioned um, in the show, Peter Jackson used machine learning or some sort of algorithm to create the battle armies in Lord of the Rings, which was like 20 years ago. So it's been around. It's just a question of like, was it ubiquitous? Was it at everyone's fingertips? And I think another thing is what is going into these algorithms? Like what are the inputs and how do we protect what's going in? Because if someone doesn't consent to their work or their writing becoming subject matter to train some algorithm, then does the algorithm have the right to use it or reproduce it? or learn from it? Yeah, it's a difficult, difficult question. Would you say you're pro or anti or wait and see AI? Um, well, look, on a personal level, AI you know, has is both exciting and kind of scary because it's going to change, you know, it, it could change my job, it could change everyone, you know, anyone's, everyone's job, but the potential is kind of cool. Like they can do a lot of cool things that can make things, you know, if you're someone who was not good at making a PowerPoint presentation or something, it can help with that, make your life easier, make you better at things that you weren't previously good at. At the same time, 
it might also be able to do your job, right. <laughs> depending on what your job is. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, generally about artificial intelligence and how it's going to roll out and whether it's really going to be a tool that makes us more efficient or better at what we do or something that can really replace, you know, certain jobs altogether. So Jess and I were talking, we were saying, well, you know, if we were go- going to school now, or I even said this like last year, if I were going to school now, I would want to do comp sci or something, anything involving comp sci, because I feel like that's going to be a critical part of how any transaction, any commerce, any business is done, engineering comp sci. Then I was reading something a couple of weeks ago saying 80% of coders think that they'll be replaced by AI in the next however many years. And then it's like, well, what industry do you think is insulated from that? And is that something maybe like a dentist or a contractor or some, someone that needs physical, to be there physically? Physical labor. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> Although I will say even like, you know, in the entertainment industry, you'd think, oh, the, the person like hanging the lights at the, at the sound the stage, grip. the yeah. grip, the truth is you can, we're at a point soon where you might be able to create artificial light after the fact, you know, and you know, use yeah. AI to kind of create an, you know, artificial light. Digital actors are already becoming a thing. So, you know, I think, yeah, you're not going to replace your plumber with AI, but, you know, there are some jobs that I think people thought that were physical and like you needed to be in person that maybe you don't. It's interesting. This is completely off topic. So an upcoming NFL telecast is going to be done via Toy Story's interface. I don't know if, did, did this come up in your article? Yeah, this, this specific example did not come up, but I it, it, it is relevant and related to that, um, which is part of the NFL's vision to, to kind of expand beyond their younger male fan base to reach more people. Outside of in, ingratiating Taylor Swift fans. That's have. The, you know, look, Taylor is probably the only person on earth that could, <laughs> that's bigger the, than the NFL. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that uh, the, the Toy Story one is interesting because they are using AI or machine learning to like create computer generated toy football players. That are going to play in like Andy's room? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how it plays out. I don't know why I'd want to watch it necessarily, but we'll see. Maybe they'll make it really entertaining. Well, from a deal perspective, this is funny because I do a lot of content distribution deals and I imagine they were a little bit in a box. It's like, well, we want something cool and shiny and new for ESPN Plus that you can't get anywhere else. And they're probably, I don't know specifically, but there's probably contractual restrictions against taking games and not having them on the flagship. The NFL has generally been pretty lenient about allowing for simulcasts within the family of, you know, channels. Yeah. And I think in this case, it's an ESPN Plus exclusive game. So it's not going to be on ESPN or ABC. It was supposed to be exclusive to ESPN Plus. It's kind of an odd time. It's a morning game because it's being held in Europe. And Disney was like, well, what if we did it as Toy Story characters and we did it on Disney Plus? Also a streaming service. So, you know, and they're often available in a bundle together anyway. So. And I think the league, which again, it tends to bake in a little flexibility to expand the audience. They don't want right. to, I think they were cool with it. And, and there isn't really a, distrib- a distribution issue because it was on ESPN plus anyway, it wasn't on a linear TV channel. Got it. So, so it was a game that they could experiment with. If it was on a linear channel, it, you get rights issues with the cable providers and satellite providers and all that. But because it was a streaming exclusive anyway, I think they had a little more flexibility. That's pretty wild, actually. They think these things are evolving at that pace. I mean, it's like the game becoming a video game in a way. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, Nickelodeon has like their own kids version of NFL games that they do, but it's more traditional broadcast with just a different announcing team and they have some, you know, some slime special effects that they put over the game oh, and stuff. Nice. Yeah. But like, you know, that's just an alternate version of the game. You know, this is 
something totally different, trying to turn a live game into a live cartoon. Um, and that's, I don't think that's ever been done before. No, I don't think so either. I remember seeing the ads for it and, and just you know being a little bit bemused or bewildered by it, but I, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and come back with our final two topics. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You mentioned this at the top of the show. Life imitates art in some ways, right? So I'm a big Succession fan. Mesh, who's not here this week, is a big Succession fan. He said he'd seen, he'd rewatched them twice. So he's seen every episode three times. I've seen every episode. There's some speculation that the show was based on the Rupert Murdoch family media empire, although I don't know that that's ever been confirmed by the writers. And then, lo and behold, last week, it turns out that Rupert Murdoch announced he's going to step down and his son is taking over. I know you have a take on this. I mean, it is like succession in real life, except we're still halfway through the season. You know, right. like you don't know what the end end game is going to be. Succession is based on an amalgam, an amalgamation of of different moguls, right? Right. Rupert Murdoch is definitely one of them. There are stories specifically around a hunting trip early on that did happen to the Murdochs, where <laughs> we you know, or yeah, a very similar thing happened to the Murdoch family. So, and there are other storylines that were based on the Redstones or um, you know a number of other media moguls. But boy, what what's happening in real life is it it's uncanny, you know, to have the 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 patriarch step aside from the empire that he founded in favor of his chosen son. That's straight out of the TV, sh- you know, straight out of the movies and TV show, you know? It is. It is. And maybe that's why Succession ended because they didn't want to be getting ahead of the story by too far. I don't know. It seems to me like obviously he's making moves brilliantly. One of the things I always think about is so in 2019, he probably saw some trends in the linear television business that were concerning to him. And he decided to exit, sell to Disney, $71 billion deal, sold a lot of his portfolio to Disney. What he kept was lean and mean, the assets that he retained. But it seemed like he did that at the right time. And so maybe his stepping down, it could be a function of age. It could be him thinking it's the right time. But do you think there's anything motivating this? Rupert Murdoch has always been a buyer and he's always been a seller. And he's always tried to buy at a great price and sell at a great price. He's made some mistakes. I think MySpace was probably... Vice? MySpace, Vice, those were not great deals. But... His purchase of the Fox Film Studio in 1985, what a bargain that was, $300 million then. His purchase of Dow Jones, you know, and I think you're right. I think he sold the entertainment assets at the peak when it was still, peak TV was rising. So that was an unbelievable deal on his part. And what's left, the risk to what's left, which is really Fox News and Fox Sports, 
is that it's very tightly tied to the cable bundle. And so if that continues to decline, and it will, if it really falls too far, then that would be hurt. Those businesses would be impacted. Of course, it might not matter that much because you, know, you already sold a good chunk of it to, to Disney. So right. you know, they still have you know, many billions of dollars, even if it went, went away, uh, which it won't. Uh, he's had uncanny timing. And I guess the question is why step down now? He is 92 years old. So, right. you know, it's not that shocking. But he also previously said that he would never step down and he would, you know, he would die as the head of his company. So it does raise some interesting questions. I do think, you know, saying something like that when you're, I don't know what age he was when he said that, but when you get to your, I, I mean, I don't know, this is entirely speculation, but I would think that your motivations and your just desire to, to play the game and your hunger would decrease a little when you get to, into the 90s, right? Because at some point yeah. you want to just spend the time you can with the people you care. I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm just yeah. But he was a newshound, like, but he was really a newspaper man. I should yeah. say, he loved to gossip. He still loves to gossip and talk about the news. And he would send emails and calls to to you know to writers at, the, at his newspapers. He wasn't so much. It's interesting because his empire, his from a financial standpoint, was really driven by television. But his love was newspapers. Different eras. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll see. Maybe there's another shoe left to fall. But it is. It is interesting how life imitates art. There is more to come. Yes. Uh, and then finally, just wanted to quickly talk about NY Film Festival. For the audience, the NY Film Festival is starting this weekend uh, in Lincoln Center in New York. It's not a major film festival in the sense like one of the household names, but it is a great little film festival happening in fall in New York, which is a great time to be here. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you do you ever... Um, my my, my taste in film personally is much more of the blockbuster variety. Okay. <laughs> That's just my, you know, I, 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 you know, pre-COVID, I would go a few times a year if there was a movie people were talking about. Like a lot of people, I don't think I've gone to films as much since COVID as I did before. Sure. But uh, the film, New York Film Festival is interesting because in the fall, there are what I would say three big film festivals. That's Cannes, Venice, uh, and Telluride. And those are where you'll get kind of the big premieres for big new movies. New York Film Festival historically doesn't get the biggest premieres, but they get the best of the best. So right, all, so it may not premiere, but it will show. Exactly. Yeah. All of the best films from the other festivals will make their way to New York, and you'll often get the directors and the actors, when there isn't an actor strike, uh, and others to kind of show up and participate. So it's a really fun one to attend, even though you're not necessarily going to be like the first person to see a movie or something. You know, right. You'll be you know a little late to the game because you know, lots of people have seen it in Venice or Telluride or whatever, but, but then you'll have a chance to see what people thought about it too and decide exactly. whether you want to see it or not. Exactly. So, you know, in this year, you know, anatomy will fall a zone of interest and, you know, the, all these films that had a lot of uh, buzz, you'll be able to check them out in person knowing that they're good. I like seeing things without a preconceived notion of what it's going to be like. I think it's harder for me to do that because I'm not seeing movies before everyone else. Uh, certainly not anymore, but it's funny because like I'll see a movie before and when that would happen, I would often find like I would really like a movie and then you start seeing sort of like mediocre reviews and then you're like, oh, well, maybe I didn't like it as much as I thought I did, right? So when I saw Bones and All at New York Film Festival last year, the first day I left the theater thinking like this made me very uncomfortable. I didn't really love the movie. But then as I thought about it and it simmered in my mind like over that the course of that night and the next morning, I actually remember saying to Jessica, you know, and Second thought, I think I did like the movie because movies aren't supposed to, one of the things they're supposed to do is like provoke thought and make you feel a certain way or 
make you at least question whether your beliefs are true or died in the wool or how you would react if you were in a different situation. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, movies are supposed to make you think. It it it, it blows my mind that like we had Barbenheimer over the summer. Right. Where you had an Oppenheimer, a movie that makes you think, you know, really about the humanity and, and you know, our civilization. And then Barbie, which is not i mean it's, it makes you it, think it makes you think but it's it's fun. Right. it's fun but like you know imagine going to oppenheimer and then going to barbie after that that's what i did you did that you did yeah. the Bar- you yeah. did it in that order in that order because i had people who went to see barbie and like were ecstatic coming out of it and then saw oppenheimer and then got really sad and, and contemplative doing it in reverse i did it in reverse spend less time thinking about oppenheimer but that's probably a better way to to do it because you leave happy. I loved Oppenheimer. And then there was like a window and I was with Jess and she said, hey, you know, Barbie's starting in an hour. I really want you to see it. Let's just go for it. And I was like, well, you know, we just saw a three hour plus movie, but sure, why not? Right. When do we get this opportunity? So the plan was to see Oppenheimer and that was it. Then Oppenheimer ended and there was openings at Barbie at, at the same theater an hour later. So we saw it and it's super fun. It was super fun, but also not... It, it, it had some depth, not the same as Oppenheimer, but it was a thought-provoking film. It's its own thing. And I, I, I do wonder, you know, what the future of popular films will be, because, you know, it's hard to create the sort of buzz that they had with that. And, you know, Marvel and DC have really struggled in the last you know, couple of films. It could just be a fluke, you know, who knows? It could be, but what if the end game was prophetic as a name for it? It's like, <laughs> this is literally the end. You know, we'll have to see how, how consumers react to these films. I think, I think they like the originality and freshness of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah. Even though Barbie is based on a piece of intellectual property that I think everybody knows, the film itself was completely original. Yeah. Well, origin stories tend to do well. And I think it's been a while since Marvel's had a groundbreaking original story, but that doesn't mean they can't do it. It's just a matter of doing it. And their run of success has been, you know, unlike anything we've seen in, in blockbuster movies. So it's un, it's not surprising that there would be a little bit of a reversion to the mean. But I think, you know, the future still remains to be. And when, to be and when you talk about a cinematic universe generally, I think for a while you can get away with a movie just being a part of a larger universe, regardless right. of what universe it was. And I don't I don't think consumers are okay with that anymore. I think they want they want a reason to go. You know. Yeah. Um, whether it's an incredible, you know, acting role or like just a really fresh original take, uh, so I think we're going to see hopefully more of that. These kind of fresh takes on 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 IP. Speaking of fresh takes, Alex, thank you so much for joining. You want to give us your Twitter or where people can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter or X, I guess as it's called now, at, at Alex Weprin. I'm on LinkedIn as well if you want to uh, follow me there. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.